uh, of about 2,000 years ago, a death took place which on the surface might not seem very significant. It's just one man dying. But at that one moment in history, is echoed and it's never been forgotten down the centuries. At that one moment in history, it wasn't just one man dying, it was a son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was dying. At that one moment, it wasn't just a futile, meaningless death. At that one moment, Jesus was bearing your sins and my sins. And at that one moment, God was shouting to a broken, needy world, I love you, I love you, I love you. Our prayer for this sermon series is that you would love Jesus, that you delight in Jesus, that you would marvel at his extravagant love for you. You would understand in a greater depth just what he did for you at the cross of Calvary. Uh, so take these sermon booklets and uh, bring them to church each week. Uh, write notes if that's the way that your mind works. Uh, take them to your connect groups as Bible studies in there. Uh, do some daily Bible readings over the next five weeks. You can read daily about God's love for you through the cross of Christ. There's also the, the what's on notes there. So I'm going to invite uh, Joe and Curtis up to bring us our two Bible readings. So please grab your Bibles alongside your sermon booklets. first reading this morning comes from Romans 3, verse 9 to 20. If you have your black Bibles there on page 968. Romans 3, starting verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have, become, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and their way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the, by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The next reading is from Mark, chapter 15, verse 16 to 38, and can be found on page 875 of your Bibles. That's Mark, chapter 15, starting at verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. 
A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults to him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, and among themselves, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross. That way we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of these standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with white vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the word of the Lord. I want to turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 on page 968. Romans chapter 3, page 968. I want to ask you how you, how you feel about the cross of Christ. When, when you think about the death of Jesus on this old wooden cross... What, what, what words do you use to describe it? I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing and yet atrocious. It is awesome and yet awful. It is wonderful and yet it is gut-wrenching. Now, when you think about the cross of Christ, uh, one thing you cannot feel is Nothing. You cannot be unmoved. It's interesting, the, uh, the Christian songwriters or hymn writers, when, when, they, when they write about the cross of Christ, they use words like wonderful, marvelous, cherish. You ever read any of those hymns? My, my, my sin... My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but in whole, is, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and Nazarene and, and wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned and clean. He, he took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. And he bore the burden to Calvary and he bled and he died alone, singing how marvellous, how wonderful, how marvellous. 
Uh, my favorite hymn on the cross is called The Old Rugged Cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. And the chorus goes like this, I, I will cherish, I will cherish the old rugged cross. Is that how you feel? Do you cherish it? Do you love it? Is your heart filled with joy and wonder and awe at what happened? Can I say, if, you, if you've never really understood the crucifixion, if you've never really understood the cross of Christ, you'll be thinking, what on earth is this guy talking about? But my fear is that too many Christians, too many people who claim to love God, they are unmoved. Maybe you've sat in church year after year after year. Maybe you've just become so, so blasé. Oh yeah, the cross of Christ, I, I know all about that. It is the defining moment of history. It's the defining moment of your life. And we all know that Jesus Christ was the most influential man of history, don't we? Yeah, he only lived for 33 years, but he changed the entire course of history. But when you read about Jesus Christ, it might be a biography, it might be another book. When you read about the life of Christ, they always focus on that one event called the cross, called the crucifixion. And I know we don't like thinking about it. And I know we don't like talking about it. But you've got to understand what happened and how barbaric that really was. You ever wondered why the early church chose this symbol as a sign for their faith? Why didn't they choose the dove, you know, that nice sign of the Holy Spirit? Why didn't they choose the empty tomb? Why didn't they choose a star for light? Why did they choose a symbol of death? Not just any old death, but the most barbaric death you could ever imagine. It's funny, I meet many Christians who talk about that, how they don't like that film called The Passion by Mel Gibson because it's so gruesome and so barbaric. No, it's actually just reality. That did what happened. That's what happened to Jesus. We, we read about it in, in, in Mark chapter 15. On that first Good Friday, Jesus was, he was mocked and he was spat on, and we read that they, they put a purple robe around him. They, they, uh, they're dressing him up like a pretend king. Ha, huh. you claim to be a king. And then they tied him to a post, and then they struck him again and again and again with a staff, a wooden stick. Uh, other gospels say they flogged him. A, a flogging man, so they got a whip, a, a leather whip with bones at the end, and so they would lash out at him, and they would lacerate his back, and they would rip the skin off until they got down to the organs. It was so gruesome that most of those victims actually died before the crucifixion. That's just the prequel. They took him to a place called Golgotha, which is a place of the skull, and what they would do, they would, they would lay this wooden cross down on the floor, and they would hurl the victim, they would hurl Jesus back onto the cross so his shoulders was in line with his crossbeam. They would get his wrist, they would find this crevice just here, and they'd get a, a, a nail, a thick nail, and they would drive it through the wrist. 
and they'd go to the other side and they'd do exactly the same thing. They would leave just enough slack so he wasn't taught like this. And then they'd get the right foot over the left foot and they'd get another nail and they would drive it through the ankles and then they would elevate the cross into the upright position. But that's just the beginning of the pain. Let me read about this. As you slowly sag down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode your brain. You push yourself upward to avoid the stretching torment, but now you feel the searing agony of the nails tearing through the nerves at your feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through your muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push yourselves up to breathe. You cannot get air into your lungs. Then comes hours of unending torture, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from your lacerated back. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain within your chest as your heart cavity fills with the serum and begins to compress the heart. It's almost over. The loss of fluids have reached critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp a small gulp of air. And finally, you feel the chill of death and you welcome its approach. That is the cross. That's what happened. That's how Jesus died. And yet, it is gruesome. It is Horrible. So why do we sing, how wonderful, how marvellous? Have you ever understood that? Why did he die? Why did Jesus choose to die? You've got to understand that it's not an accident. It wasn't some tragic mistake. The cross was always God's plan. From the beginning of time, God had planned that his son would be crucified. And Mark chapter 8 says... Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer and he must be crucified. There's no other way. I want to say this one. The more you understand what is happening the more, and why it's happening, the more you will sing how marvellous, how wonderful. But one simple point for this morning's sermon. It's on the screen. We are all under sin, so we all need a saviour. That's simple. We are all under sin, so we all need a saviour. Let me unpack that first half. We are all under sin. I know that word sin is unpopular. I know it sounds negative. You might be thinking, I didn't come to church this morning to hear a negative sermon about sin. You may be saying, that's why churches are half empty, because you talk about the negative stuff. Just talk about love all the time. Can I say that phrase, you are all under sin, is some of the most loving words you'll ever hear like a doctor who loves you enough to tell you the truth. If the doctor doesn't tell you you've got a malignant tumour, he could do nothing about it. But if he tells you the truth and then tells you the solution, it's loving, isn't it? And for the Bible to say we are all under sin, but the solution is a cross, they're the most loving words you can hear. You need to know your problem because you can only delight in a solution when you understand what you've been rescued from. Here it is again, Romans 3, verse 9. 
Romans 3 verse 9, that the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. That there's Paul's argument. All people, Jews, Gentiles, self-righteous, religious, all backgrounds, all nationalities, all religions in every country, we are all under the power of sin. And so please don't point the finger at other people and say, oh yeah, my sister's like that and my work colleague's like that. No, I am like that and you are like that and we all like that. And to prove his point, Paul strings together seven quotes from the Old Testament like strings of pearls. They are from Ecclesiastes and the Psalms and Isaiah to back up this claim that we're all under the power of sin. But we've got to understand what that word sin means. What is sin? When you hear the word sin, please, please don't think of all the wrong things that you do. That is, that, that's not sin. That's the sins. That's the consequence of your sin. Your, your sin is a, a heart attitude. According to Paul, sin is, seek, is not seeking God and it's not fearing God. That is sin. It's there in verse 11. There's no one who seeks God. It's there in verse 18. There's no fear of God. That is sin. It's the Attitude that doesn't seek God and doesn't fear God. Not seeking God is really just saying we choose to ignore God. You ever been ignored? Ever had those occasions where you're walking down the streets and you, and you spot someone you know and you smile and you see them walking towards you. And they see you, they make eye contact but they walk straight past you. How does that feel? When someone walks into your house and they eat your food and sit on your couch and completely ignore you, how does that feel? That's what it means not to seek God. We only turn to God when we want something from him. We, we don't acknowledge that he actually knows best about everything. We don't seek him at all. Life is all about me and what I want and what I need. And according to verse 18, there's no fear of God or more literally we don't revere God. We don't... Give him the due that he deserves. And the best illustration of this I've used before is the 1966 Soccer World Cup, which is the only thing that England has ever won. <laughs> On the screen there's a picture of Bobby Moore, the captain, who is receiving the World Cup from Her Majesty the Queen. And if you watch the video, when Bobby Moore climbs the steps to receive the World Cup... He's just doing this constantly on his shorts. And an interview afterwards, Bobby Moore says, I walked up those steps and I saw Her Majesty and I saw these pristine white gloves. And I saw my filthy, dirty, grubby hands. And I couldn't possibly put a filthy, dirty hand out to shape the hand of Her Majesty. And he tried to clean himself. Do you recognize that God is pure, holy, righteous, and perfect? And in comparison, you are dirty and filthy and grubby and grimy. If we really feared God, we'd say, God, I need you. I need cleaning. I need washing because I am filthy. That is sin. It's the attitude which says, God, I don't need you. I don't care about you. I don't want you, God. 
And I find it really sad when people, people try to argue they're basically a nice person, they're basically a good person. You might be the nicest, kindest, most pleasant person in the entire world. You might treat people incredibly well, but you still haven't loved God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, have you? That's the essence of sin, not seeking God. And, and according to Paul, sin is pervasive. It affects every part of us. That, that's verses 13 to 17. Uh, your sin affects your mind, your emotions, your conscience, your throats, your tongues, your lips, your mouth, your feet, your eyes, every part of us. So verse 13, your, your words are full of sin. Throats are open graves. Tongues practice deceit. Verse 14, mouths full of cursing and bitterness. Now you know that. You know that your words are not perfect. You know that your words cause hurt and cause harm. Sometimes we even choose deliberately the right word to cause the most amount of pain. Why do we do that? We know that our words have the capacity to destroy someone. Our words are sinful, our actions are sinful, verses 15 to 17. Feet that are swift to shed blood. We cause misery, we cause pain, we are selfish and we are proud. And what Paul is describing here is what's a doctrine that's called the, the doctrine of total depravity. And that means that it, does, it doesn't mean that we are all as depraved as we could be. He's just saying that every part of you is tainted by sin. Packer Healthy says this, no one is as bad as he or she might be but no action of ours is as good as it should be or could be. So the essence of sin is not seeking God. The pervasiveness of sin means that it affects every part of us. But Paul's big point is that everyone is a sinner. Do you spot the repeated word in verse 10? There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. He, he's pretty clear, isn't he? He's pretty repetitive. No one, no one, no one, no one, no one. There are no exceptions. Every man, woman, boy and girl is a sinner. But Paul says more than that. It's not, he doesn't just call us sinners. Uh, verse 9 says we are under the power of sin. Do you spot that word? We are under the power of sin. It's like sin has weight over us. It crushes us. It's not just occasionally we have a problem with our pride or our lust or our greed. We are under its control, under its force, under its pull. Can you believe it's uh, over 20 years since the uh, Threadbow skiing disaster? Remember that? 1997, 3,500 tonnes of rubble and mud comes crushing down the hillside in Threadbow, wipes out their chalets, destroys lives. Remember Stuart Diver? Remember that name, the sole survivor? 67 hours, Stuart Diver was trapped underground, under mud, under the rubble. 67 hours in freezing temperatures. Utterly helpless. Utterly powerless. Utterly unable to rescue himself. He thought he was dead. Until by some miracle, somebody actually lifted the burden of the mud from him and lifted the weight of the mud from him and released him and liberated him and freed him. He's alive because he's no longer trapped under the mud. 
That's what Paul is saying here. We are under the power of sin. We are powerless, we are helpless, we are trapped, and we can't free ourselves. How are you feeling right now? How do you feel being told that you are a sinner under the power of sin? For me, it's actually quite comforting, you know. It's actually really comforting because I know how bad I am and most of the time I try and pretend and try and hope that you don't know the real me. And you know what you're really like. And to be told that every human being is like that, we, we can't blame other people. We can't sort of say, oh, no, it's my parents' fault. It's my education's fault. It's society's fault. It's my genetic makeup. No, no, we are all just sinners. It's a level playing ground. And if we're all under sin, it means we've got the same problem. We're facing a just, righteous God with those pure, perfect lives. We're going to stand before him. And we are filthy and grimy and dirty. Remember the Bible in Psalm 51. King David writes about how he felt about his affair with Bathsheba. He committed adultery and he murdered Bathsheba's husband and he murdered many and yet he writes against you God against you only have I sinned and he recognizes that ultimately his sin is offense against God one day we will stand before God and give an account for the way we've lived and we are all 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 without excuse and that's why we need a savior That's why we need a saviour. We don't need a teacher and we don't need a psychologist and we don't need a moralist. We need someone who will rescue us. Can I also say we don't need religion? We certainly don't need religion. The last thing that you need is a list of rules that you need to keep to try and make sure that on that last day you've done enough to pay for your sins because you can never do enough. And I say that because churches are full of religious people who are doing good stuff and thinking pious thoughts and patting themselves on the back for being nice, good, upright people. Verse 20 tells us that the law can never save us. Keeping rules cannot bring you into a relationship with God. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law. All the law does is makes you conscious of your sin Reminds you how far you have fallen. So we don't need religion. We don't need teachers or psychologists or most. We need a saviour. Think again of that here. My sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not just bits of it, not just episodes, the whole of my sin is nailed to that cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's what the Bible is saying. That's what we're going to be investigating for the next five weeks. How Jesus paid for it. Why Jesus paid for it. But you've got to understand, he paid for your sin. It's like you were trapped under the weight of your sin, not for 67 hours, but for all eternity. And unless somebody lifts that burden from you, you're going to face eternity bearing the consequence of your sin. And when I meet Christians who are joyless, or duty-driven, I think it's because they haven't understood what they're being freed from. It's like they're living in this darkened room, and they've got used to the darkened room, and so they just see things in the darkness. And suddenly someone comes in, and they flick the light on, and they're like, whoa, 
wow, I see now. That might be you here this morning, that you've been living a duty, joyless Christian life, and you've never understood how much he's done for you. There's a few verses on the screen. 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and God is just, and the promise is he will forgive you and he will purify you. This is love, not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We're going to unpack that next week. All I want you to understand today is that you need a savior because you're a sinner. And at that one moment, Jesus is saving you from your sins. Jesus is liberating you from your sins. He's lifting the burden and the weight of your sins off you and from you. So you are free. What does the Bible say about your sins being dealt with? Remember those images? They are beautiful, aren't they? Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your sins from you. Uh, Micah chapter 7 says that God gets your sins and he chucks them to the bottom of the ocean so you, you can't get them back anymore. Uh, Isaiah talks about, Isaiah 38 talks about how God hides your sins behind his back so he can't see them. That's what you need. If you recognize you're a sinner, you need somebody to put your sins at the bottom of the ocean, to hide them behind God's back and to remove them from you. You need someone to do that because you can't do it yourself. Now you begin to understand what Jesus did for you. Uh, we, We read in Mark's gospel that the, 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 the people are saying, Jesus, save yourself. And Jesus could have saved himself, couldn't he? Jesus could have avoided death, but he didn't. He chose not to. Why didn't he, why didn't he avoid death? And the answer is because of you and because of me, because he saw you and he saw me and he loved you and he loved me and he saw how desperate our need really was and there was no other way. We need our sins blotted, we need to be cleansed, we need to be forgiven, we need to be wiped clean, and we need to be washed whiter than snow. And I can't do it, and you can't do it, but Jesus did it. And now do you understand why understanding your sin is such good news? It's like a cancer patient. You you, you never actually appreciate chemotherapy until you've got cancer. But once you've got cancer... You're like, wow, that is amazing. You never appreciate the cross until you recognize you're a sinner. But when you recognize you're a sinner, you're going, wow, that is amazing. At one moment, at one moment, your sin and my sin and the sins of the whole world was taken on one man in history, and his name was Jesus. And when you understand that, When you grasp that, you can't be unmoved. You should feel something. You should be feeling how wonderful, how marvelous, how glorious. Let's cherish, let's cherish this old wooden cross. It's not only a defining moment of history, it's a defining moment of your life. It's a defining moment of your life when you grasp that, it changes everything. on a hill far away.
stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I cherish that old wooden cross. Our Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that indeed we are sinners, we are dirty. We don't seek you, we don't fear you as we should. We're in need of your mercy. We're in need of your forgiveness. We're in need of someone to to wipe away our sins, to wash us, to cleanse us, to lift the burden, to lift the weight. And so we say thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he was willing and obedient. Thank you that he sacrificed himself. Thank you that he suffered for my sin and for your sin. Thank you, Lord God, for all you've done for us in the cross. In Jesus' name.